Content, information, and opinions expressed during the related show are those of the show personalities and guest alone, and not those of Vic Canellis Media Group, its parent, affiliates, or stations. VCMG Live is not responsible for any content, information, or opinions expressed. User bears full responsibility for their reliance on such content, information, or opinions. Just past 7 o'clock, and here we go. Up, up, and away. Time for Ira on Sports. True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Another great show on tap for you tonight. Ira's live in studio. We're doing the show live. You must be going a little bit crazy, Ira. I mean, you had such a hectic, what, three or four months where you're in three cities a week sometimes. Now you've been home for a week and a half. What's going on? And I have to get up, but it's not, remember, not staying up late to watch the NBA. Now it's getting up early to watch Wimbledon. I <laughs> love watching Wimbledon. I'll give this guarantee next year I'm at it. I have to be. It's a must. You've been saying it for five years. I know, we gotta get I know, you to but it was COVID and it was canceled and it was this <laughs> and and you can't travel and fly, but I, I just love this. I've any tournament I watch, I just love watching it. It's you so you should go on a, a, pit, a Pirates road trip and follow the Pirates for a, for a road series and see a couple of stadiums. We have a great guest today. And, you know, we had Sonny Vaccaro on about a month ago, and they're making a movie about his life. And when I you sit down and, and hear about Bob Whitsitt, you could make a movie about this guy's life. It, not only is it f- phenomenal what he's done in his career, it's very timely right now with what's going on in the NBA. Yeah, he was the general manager of the Seattle Sonics for eight years, the Portland Trailblazers for eight years, and for the Seattle Seahawks. He's the only person ever to be the general manager of a pro football team and a pro basketball team. And when <laughs> he was crazy. at Portland, he had to make the major decision of trading Clyde Drexler, which is what we're going to talk about at Damian Lillard, trading him. So he traded the cornerstone franchise player. And he also brought in someone like Pat Riley's dealing with, Scottie Pippen, near the end of his career, bringing in a star player like that. So all these things, it's amazing. 18 years, he was in, I think, GM for 18 years, 17 years, he made the playoffs, uh, involved, I cannot wait to have him on and talk about everything, certainly about Dame Lillard, but also his background, which is the fact that he created these the Seattle franchise that went to the finals and the Portland franchise that twice went to Western Conference finals and was one of the best teams I've ever seen. And he was the architect, I think, of the Seahawks right before their Legion they of went to the, run. Right, when they went to, this, uh, when they went to the Super Bowl and the Steelers beat in the Super Bowl. Correct. So, yeah, I mean, this guy's resume is fantastic. He's a great interview. We'll talk to him at 720. Don't forget, Ira's all over social media at Ira on Sports. So let's jump right into the NBA and free agency opened and things move quickly (laughs) with NBA free agency. You blink and you can miss some signings. Where do we stand right now? You can start with the uh, our Miami Heat. Well, they lost Gabe Vincent. Like, in, remember, it started at six o'clock on Friday. By six o two, I think everything was signed. Vincent so, and Struis were done. <laughs> so Vincent signed for the Lakers three years, thirty. The, the Heat had offered him that's like eleven million a year. The Heat offered him eight million a year, but he just took the the money. For, it seems like the Lakers were able to find money out of nowhere. Yeah, which I, I don't I get think this. When we have a new Space Jam three, and some of these players are all in it. It's <laughs> sort of like LeBron paid him that way. Uh, Max Struis signed with the Cavaliers, four years, sixty three million. I. 
I don't mind not matching that because the fact is they, they did that for Duncan Robinson. They gave him $18 million and now it's a contract. Struess was an undrafted free agent, but he's had some games where he's been terrible, but they, that's their entire backcourt. So they did lose Struess and Vincent. They brought in Seti Osman back from the Cavs, who I actually like. I think he's going to be good. He's from Turkey. He's 6'7 and was a 6th or 7th uh, man on the Cavs last year. I actually like getting him back, but uh, it was they lose Cody Zeller to the Pelicans. They bring Kevin Love back. They picked up Josh Richardson. People were like, Josh Richardson, what did he play? He He's the player that was supposed to be there with one of the first round picks, really big uh, board in the Heat about six, seven years ago. They traded him for Jimmy Butler to the 76ers, and he's really just been bouncing around, not doing well, um, a lot of injuries. And they brought him on a, on a minimum deal to come back. Uh, so we'll see what happens there. And they picked up Thomas Bryant as center. But everything, they're sort of like moving. They got rid of Victor Oladipo. They're moving the deck chairs around in order to, to, to put themselves in a position to get Dame Lillard if it presents itself. So what's going on at Portland? Because it really all anyone's talking about is Dame Lillard. They signed, now this is where I, I don't know what's going on. Because they, they signed Jeremy Grant five years, $160 million. Damian Lillard did not ask for a trade that day. But then the next day, that was Friday, Saturday, he asked for a trade. So on Friday, you know, and they signed Jeremy Grant for 160 And now they're like, now they're in rebuild mode. Lillard wants to trade. And he said, I want to be traded to the Heat. So it's like, oh, everyone's all excited that he's going to be traded to the Heat. But there's so much that has to go into this. And supposedly they don't want Tyler Hero. And they, but there's supposed to be other teams to facilitate where whoever wants Hero, what will happen is someone will say, I really want Tyler Hero. So the Heat will trade Tyler Hero to the team that wants them. They get those draft picks, and those draft picks then go to Portland. Um, Hero, you, you have to look at every little tea leaf. Hero has an Instagram or a Twitter site. Yes, it's on his it, Twitter, yeah, yeah. And what it says, it says, He took off Miami Heat shooting guard. He's He's no longer the Miami just, just NBA shooting guard. So if I see Mike Balsama is no longer Ira on sports, <laughs> Generic radio I, host. I should get nervous. I should be look. so with that. So he took that off. I mean, so it's like these little things that you look at. And I think from the Heat's perspective, now does the Heat want to give up Vasquez, who they drafted, Jokic, who they was a first round pick last year. So they give their best two first round picks, three future, future ones in 28, 30, 32. They want to give up Kyla Martin. They want to give up Tyler Hero, all for Damian Lillard. Lillard. I want to say something. Count me. Everybody wants this. I am on the. I'm nervous. I don't know. If it's I a win to... right now. Move obviously. But one thing is, Pat Riley's good with draft picks. It's not like he wastes first round picks. Even second round picks, he does well with. So it's not like you know some organizations. The Knicks, if it's a f- number fifteen pick, just throw it out. You, you might as well trade it. Pat Riley hits with guys like this. He got Bam at thirteen. So L- it's, you Lillard know... is thirty three. You're going to be thirty three years old. He played twenty nine games two years ago. Fifty eight last year. I'm just nervous about it. And I'm also nervous about, and we're going to ask Bob what's about this, about, like, I don't know what the ceiling of, of Tyler Hero is. How great will Tyler be? He's 22 yeah. years old. He's, I don't know. <laughs> you don't have the same, uh, that's what I think most Pete fans think. I think Portland does, too. But, and that's the point, because I think Lillard is on the downward. He's down. He's, he's going to be 34, 35. He's the highest paid player in the NBA. He gets paid uh, 200. He's getting going to pay $217 million over the next couple of years. Uh, $46 million this year, 49 then 59 and then 60 $63 million. So this is a really big commitment you're going to have. It's really going to be Lillard, Butler, Adebayo. Anyone who you heard a rumor, someone says, well, Adebayo will be trained. No, Adebayo, he's coming here to play with Adebayo yeah. and Butler. Adebayo's his friend. Yeah, that's what. And then, and now people thought, well, we could get Brooke Lopez. He's not. Brooke Lopez is going back. So we'll talk, go down some of the free agents. But it looks like whether this happens uh, in the next 15 minutes during our show or in October, I don't know. But I think it's he like, can't be traded until July 8th, I heard. July 8th. So you're yeah. right about that. We won't hear anything until July. 
LA, so that is correct. About that. So the always most polarizing team in the NBA is the LA Lakers, and it seems like with their move so far, people either think it's the greatest thing ever or completely stupid and they're never going to win another game. What do you think happens Well, every here? year it seems like they sign all these players and it doesn't work out. This year I do actually like they, they re-signed Austin Reeves four years 56. D'Angelo Russell came back at two years 37. Now Russell hardly played in the play at the end of the playoffs. He wasn't playing that well but again uh, LeBron's probably going to take half the season off so they need someone to score a lot of points in the game so that makes sense. Rui Hachimura who played well with them three years 51. So those moves of bringing in Rui Hachimura that was really that was a great move on his part and, and elevating Austin Reeves because that that's sort of at the trade deadline. That showed them what players they could have and how it would work. They brought in uh, Terry and Prince from Minnesota, who's actually a really good player for one year, four and a half million. Jackson Hayes, a center from New Orleans. Cam Reddish from Portland. And they really only lost Lonnie Walker of the Nets to the Nets and Schroeder to the Raptors. So when you put everything together, people are really, really excited with the Lakers because of who they brought in and the fact that they're surrounding uh, LeBron with better pieces and Anthony Davis. So people are getting, now the Laker, we're excited, let's go. Laker thing is people are going. I was a little bit surprised to see where Fred Van Fleet ended up because I didn't think Houston was going to try to really do anything here. Houston's a very young team. Remember, I saw them when they played the Lakers when I was down there for the national chip for the college basketball national championship and they were able, they made some, they signed Dylan Brooks, four years 80, which I think is ridiculous from Memphis. Memphis said we don't want Dylan Brooks anymore. They signed him four years 80, which I think is probably the worst contract. Then they signed Van Fleet, three years 130. So they put $45 million a year. For, he's the highest paid undrafted uh, player in the history of the NBA from Toronto. Really hurts Toronto. It's a point Guard. But I, what I like about them, Houston does have great young players. Emil Duco is their coach from the coach from Boston that came down there. So this, Houston has positioned themselves, and they had all this cap room to spend because they have all these rookies on their team. So Jalen Green and Shabari Smith. So I think I, I actually like, I don't like the Dylan Brooks signing, but I did like the Fred Van Fleet signing. And they brought Jeff Green from Denver, too. So a lot of good moves from Houston's perspective. My New York Knicks brought in Dante DiVincenzo, and this was a guy I had to look up and be like, wait, what is this guy's scoring average? Like, I like who did him. we just pay? Tell I, me about him. Well, he was, so now the 2018 national champion team was Josh Hart, Jalen Brunson, and Dante DiVincenzo from Villanova. So once Jay Wright comes to the Knicks and coach, those are three <laughs> of the starting five from the team. He played for Milwaukee, was a good performer for them, then gets hurt, and then this past year, he was in Golden State. I thought he played well for Golden State, uh, and he signed four years, 50. I think he fits really, I think he's going to be great. He's more of a uh, between a three and a four, play, can handle the ball, shoot the, shoots the three well, but in terms of his uh, chemistry with Hart and Brunson, they're all best friends. So this is now you have the whole Villanova team, all three very smart players put together. I, re I love this. Love this. One. I don't think we spoke about Philly. James Harden said he was opting out, then decides to opt in. Yeah, 43 Hard million or something. Right. So he opted in, and Harden, you talk about, he was turned down two years, $103 million extension from Houston. If it would be opting in, he's only now made $68 million. So he actually lost $35 million by not just taking the extension. And he's trying to get back to Houston. So Houston offered him to, but he's now going from Brooklyn to Philadelphia. He says he wants to go back to Houston, but if he would have just opted in, he would have been in Houston with the other <laughs> the extra uh, $35 million. And now they said he wants traded, but nobody really wants James Harden right now, so that's sort of on the back burner. Uh, Dallas is going to retain Kyrie Irving. I don't really know what's going on with that team. They offered him three years, 126. He turned down four years, 187 for the Nets before the whole COVID pandemic thing. So he actually cost himself money also. They really, when they made the trade for Kyrie, they're boxed in. But we saw it last year. They brought Kyrie in with Luka. They do not work at all. I said when I heard this, they don't work. These are two players that want to dribble, dribble, dribble the ball all the time. They don't want anyone else to touch the ball. It doesn't fit. I don't think it's going to work. 
and they might have signed. The team got worse when Kyrie Irving. They they didn't make the playoffs. So I really think that what's going to happen is that in about by I think someone Brian Scalabrini was saying on NBA Radio today that by February he's going to demand a trade. So this is just a or sit out or have a sister's birthday. He has to make. So I really think that to think that Kyrie's going to take the three years one twenty six or Luca's going to ask out because someone's going to because I just don't think they can play together with each other. A couple of big name players are staying put. Yeah, I mean, I think the key things in Milwaukee, Chris Middleton signed three years, 102, and Brooke Lopez. Those are two big signings for Milwaukee. Milwaukee's just going to— A lot of people thought that uh, uh, Middleton was going to walk. Right, because he turned out a $45 million contract. But it looks like Milwaukee—I mean, this is Giannis wanted Middleton. He wants him to come back. I saw Milwaukee play a couple times last year, certainly in the Heat series, and I also saw when they played the Lakers. I, I think he's lost a step or two steps. I, I think I think this was a bad signing for the Bucks. I, th- I don't. I think they could have should have been. They probably maybe should have gone younger with this. But three years, one hundred two. But bringing Lopez back is crucial because he's that means everything. Because it lets Giannis then play the four and five. Otherwise, Giannis would have to be the center. And then Golden State. To no surprise of anyone, brought Draymond Green back for four years, 100. They traded Jordan Poole, who he punched yeah. early in the year. They bring Jay. Anybody who watched the match, I know I was one of the few people in the country to watch the match, but it he was, was so with bad. Clay Thompson and Steph Curry. He's out there running around, and they're like, oh, we don't know what he's going to do. Well, you just spent the entire day with running around with Steph and Clay. Of course you're going to go back. Mm-hmm. He's having, he's on, he was actually putting, hitting everything there. Um, Russell Westbrook coming back. That was a surprise because, well, when you earn a three hundred and I think forty million dollars over your career, he, the way his contract went, he got boxed in. He was traded so much that the most what the Clippers could do, the only Clippers could sign him was like to a four-year, four million dollar contract. So he's only getting paid. But he loves being from Los Angeles. He fit in great. Remember, George and Leonard get hurt all the time. So in the playoffs, he was dominant, played great. The, the Lakers fans hated him. The Clipper fans love him. He likes being in Los Angeles. This is a smart move for him. I think this is great. I think it's a player saying, where am I the happiest? I've already made so much money. I want to play. I think it's a great move. And, I mean, that is crazy to think he's only making $4 million a year. I didn't realize there was stipulations with how many times you've been traded. But. Well, I think it was mainly, it was that, but it was also because the Clippers could only have that much money and they couldn't really pay him more. It was, mm-hmm. it was a combination of him and the Clippers in terms of the, the cap room, which they're going to run into, which is uh, problems in the future. You want to wrap up the rest of basketball before we move on? Yeah, Bruce Brown and Jeff Green left Denver. Uh, Brown played great in the playoffs. That He was fantastic. He went to Indiana two years, $45 million. So here's a player for the Nets who people thought he was going to be out of the league and he just signed a two-year $45 million and, and they lost Jeff Green. But it looks like from Denver... Look, it's a team that anybody would want to come and play with Jokic, and they drafted well. Christian Braun's going to have a larger role this year. So, I really, again, it looks like, oh my gosh, Denver lost two of their big reserves. They'll be fine. Phoenix did something very unusual. They signed about six players. So, usually you wait till all the other players to sign. They signed a lot of minimum salary players, and a lot of them all fitting into where Durant, Booker, Ayton, and Beal, sort of around that. And they also they got lucky because no one signed Eric Gordon, who I really, really like, who played for Houston. And then he played for the Clippers last year, and they signed him to a a minimum salary deal. So I think he'll fit in perfectly with Phoenix. So I did like what Phoenix did with some of their moves. Sacramento did something interesting. They signed Sasha Vesvensikov, who was the European Player of the Year. And I think I've seen him play on TV like at 2 in the morning, whatever. I like him a lot. I think he's going to be – I saw him against Wembanyana. He's a really good player, and I think he could play next year. Uh, Just some other big things for the NBA. The extensions. Anthony – 
I'm going to give you these salaries. You're like, what? You know, Anthony Edwards of Minnesota, who five years, $260 million. So now you're seeing the $50 million year average. Sacramento, Dominus Sabonis, their center, five years, 217. Memphis, Desmond Bain. Now, this is not John Moran. <laughs> this is Desmond Bain, who I think is more valuable to the team than John Moran, but he signed five years, 207. So Jackson, Moran, and Bain now are locked up for like the next three years. That's Memphis's desire to say, this is what our team's going to be. And then Tyrese Halliburton, who, if you're a Nick fan, and you're like, we drafted Obi Toppin, and then a couple picks later, Obi Toppin was just traded for two second-round draft picks. Indiana then, or at that point, it was Sacramento, drafted Tyrese Halliburton. A lot of people were saying for the Knicks, draft Halliburton from Iowa State. Draft him. They didn't. Halliburton is, is playing great. Signed for the Indiana Pacers. Five years, $260 million. And then Lame Charlotte signed LaMelo Ball. Five years, 260 Another five years, 260 But he gets hurt all the time. I, I question that move because he really hasn't played a full season the last couple years, but I think as a Nick fan, that Tyrese Halliburton pick, he would have been a perfect backcourt mate with Jalen Brunson, so I thought I was really surprised by that. LaMelo Ball just made more money than Michael Jordan did in his playing career. Oh. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> and Jordan selling the team, so that this is the end of the, Jordan won't be owning the team coming into this year because he decided to sell the almost, I think, the majority interest of the team. It's 718. This is Ira on Sports, True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. we got to fly as we've got Bob Whitsitt on the line, ready to go. Major League Baseball, Ira, if you're not watching the show, uh, Shohei Otani show, you're missing out. He's on pace right now to break Aaron Judge's records from last year. 1,400 OPS in the month of June. Four players ever have done that. Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, Shoeless Joe Jackson, guy from the 1800s. So this is like unprecedented. This hasn't happened in a hundred years, what he's doing. As a hitter. Yeah, well, yeah, his, his OPS. The pitching is still, you know, top of the league as well. But just with the bat, what he's doing is absolutely insane. Any comments on baseball? We, we talked last week about Mets, Padres. When are you going to start, you know, Put some put these coaches on the hot seat at least. Padres lost another two series to, to Washington over the past couple of days. Like these these are train wrecks that are spiraling out of control. Yeah, if you look at the high the teams with the highest payroll in baseball and the Mets and the Padres are the two teams with the highest. It is simply amazing. The Mets are eighteen and a half behind Atlanta and the Padres are eleven and a half behind Arizona and they're back in the. But I'm telling you, I don't think any of these teams Mets or Padres people say, well, they're going to become sellers, not buyers. I if you're the Mets, I think you have to until you're eliminated, you stay in because you have. You put all your chips in the middle. You just have to keep going. There's nothing. There's no retreat. There's no surrender. Mm. I think you go for the whole thing. And maybe Diaz, supposedly Diaz, their closer, uh, who got injured in the World Baseball Classic, um, is going to be back by September at the end. So mm. possibly that could be something. I did see Otani on the 27th on TV. I was It's like 2 in the morning when he plays. Um, he pitched. It was just an amazing game. He Six innings, 10 strikeouts, and he hit in the middle. He starts the game out with a home run that was like 500 feet, and then he hits another 500-foot home run. So two months home runs, six inning pitches, ten strikeouts. Every time he does something, it's like it's never been done. It's never been done. It's this is he's like exploring space and landing on every planet because <laughs> no one ever has done. Like he's uh, Babe Ruth never did what Otani did. One real quick thing from a betting angle right now: Shohei Otani's minus fourteen fifty to win the AL MVP. He could get hit by a bus tomorrow. He's still going to win the MVP. Ronald Acuna is minus one forty five. Ten times better odds, and he's walking away with the NL NL MVP if he doesn't get hurt. I think for the value there, throw a little money on it. You're 100% correct on that because he is by far going to win. The Atlanta is nine ahead over Miami. They're going to win the division. Who else between the other division winners? No one from Milwaukee, Cincinnati. No one from the Dodgers, maybe Freeman or something, but Arizona. But clearly, Acuna is going to win it. It's, that's a, you, you sent that to me, and I'm like, you're totally right. He is going to win it. It's, like a, it's, an, it's free money, but it's, only, it's great. Great, great uh, catch on your part. So 
we gotta go quick here. The match was on, and I maybe these events just don't work when you have guys that can't play golf. Because listen, Travis Kelsey surprised me, hit some great shots. Clay Thompson has no business having his golf game televised. I mean, it's like watching me on, on replay. It was bad. Yeah, I mean, Curry could not cover a pro golfer. The problem is when you have Clay with a pro golfer, it would work, but Curry cannot cover carry Clay. But Mahomes was tremendous, and Kelsey is just amazing. And when you watch it, I think the one thing is. Draymond Green is enormous because when he was sitting next to Kelsey, who we think is a very large side, and Draymond Green towered over Kelsey. Yeah. But I just, the, when you watch, I, I'm just from the Kansas City angle, the camaraderie between Kelsey and Mahomes, you can see how they are just yeah, like, best they are just on the same. They are hilarious. They get along well. Like, those two are tied forever. They were tremendous. And I, I, I might be the only person in the world that enjoyed was watching that. <laughs> uh, congratulations, Jupiter resident Ricky Fowler, back in the winner's circle after four years. He's had a lot of close calls this season, but finally put one away. Let's talk about this. I mean, again, Ricky Fowler was one of the top endorsers besides behind Tiger Woods. And and the people are saying his galleries at this were like Tiger Woods galleries. But he went through a stretch of three years where he went from being like fourth in the world to he was at uh, last year 125th. If the live golfers that played, he would have lost his tour guard, have to go to Q School, the the, the Corn Ferry Tour. All I mean, he he couldn't make a cut. And he goes to Butch Harmon, uh, the golfer, the the. Um, um, swing coach, coach yeah. swing coach that worked with Tiger Woods and switched everything and got everything back and now he's playing great as we've seen and uh, and this was just a tremendous what a win I mean he he did fifth at the U.S. Open and now this uh, great I mean, it's great to see Ricky back he's, he's, he's a not, great ambassador for the game great ambassador he goes to the Honda Classic and you talk to anybody there and it's like well this person this person is like Ricky stood at the Puma 10 for an, two hours afterwards and signed mm -hmm. every single autograph he is a, if there's ever a player that you want to have done great and get back it's he's perfect for golf if you're a kid you get an autograph from ricky fowler yes. he waits for you it's it's insane I've, I've seen it before he doesn't like to sign adults which i don't blame him. he doesn't have for five <laughs> hours to do it live tour Taylor Gooch had him on the show before, an Iron Sports alumni got a big win over good competition. Yeah, and I picked him in the U.S. Open. I, I'm telling you, you, if you watch how he's how Taller's playing, he's playing great. Uh, Bryson DeChambeau was second, Brooks was third, Patrick Reed is fifth, DJ ninth, and Cam Smith twelfth. Think about this: they're playing in European courses. So with the U.S. Open, with the British Open coming up in three weeks, uh, put some money on Taller Gooch. He'll be like sixty to one, and he's playing really well. And he's a really good golfer. So that's what. And we also was on our show. So I'm happy what's coming that. up next for golf? Um, oh, and one more other point. Bernard Langer won the Senior Open, and he's what? It just he's now won 46 Senior Tour events, winning the most ever. He's 65 years old, and he's still beating golfers in their 50s, which is amazing. Um, it's really with John Deere and the London uh, for for the PGA, and then Live, and then in two weeks is the British Open, which is going to be super exciting to get ready for. Wimbledon kicked off, and uh, where do we stand with that? Well, today, Djokovic, it's all about Djokovic. He's going for his eighth Wimbledon title to tie Federer. He's had won 23 Grand Slams. He'll be going to 24. Nadal, of course, is 22. Kyrgyz pulled out. Um, Djokovic is, um, is, a, is a minus, uh, is, is a plus, really, plus 100, 200 to win. So he's a, he, there's a less than even odds to win this tournament mm -hmm. against all the 123 other. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's amazing. He is not going to lose um, in the top half of the draw. The, the interesting matches are Alcaraz, who's he won a grass court event two weeks ago, but we'll see how he does this. But TFO and Holger Rune are going to meet in the round of 16. Alcaraz can meet TFO or Rune.
Cameroon in the in the quarterfinal, which would be super exciting. And then in the other part of that top half draw is Medvedev, Korda, Paul, Ben Shelton. I'm looking for some Americans. I want to see Ben Shelton, Tommy Paul, or Sebastian Korda to make some damage on that side. On the bottom, Djokovic is just going to run through it. I, there's no one. I mean, the, the match that's interesting would be on round of 16, uh, Sinner versus Fritz. That should be a good one. But Djokovic is not losing. This is his best service. I mean, I said this last week. Last year, he played Nick Kyrgios. Kyrgios is the, one of the best grass court players you could imagine. He's the best reflexes, the best serve, best everything. He did not play Nadal because Nadal uh, uh, withdrew. So he had a free pass. Djokovic had to play a match. Kyrgios played the best match he's ever played his whole life. Djokovic still won. So there's no way Djokovic loses. There's none. <laughs> like, if Kyrgios wasn't going to beat him last year, there's no one going to beat him. So I would say. And the women's side, Coco Goff today lost to Sophia Kennan. She's really struggling. She just needs to get a coach. Something has to get her game. Kennan played great. And, that, and then, but Iga Swiatek's takes the number one seed, but she has trouble there on the grass. I like to see Americans, Jessica Bogula, uh, the number four seed, uh, see how well she does. Venus lost today. So it'll be exciting. I, I, I love watching Wimbledon. And I really just, if you get a chance, get up there, watch Djokovic, because you are watching the greatest tennis player to ever play. Let's go to Bob Whitsitt. It's Iron Sports. This is Iron Sports, and we are honored today to have Bob Whitsitt and on the show, former general manager of the uh, Seattle Supersonics, Portland Trailblazers, and Seattle Seahawks. And your career, Bob, has been absolutely tremendous. You have a book out called Game Changer, Changer Insider Story of Sonics Resurgence, the Trailblazers Turnaround, and the Deal that Saved the Seahawks. That's uh, just amazing life when you re go through everything. And I can't wait for this book to come out. Usually I read the book before the show, but... Uh, it's uh, you've been involved in almost everything with football and basketball. The only general manager ever uh, football, for NFL team and NBA team. Well, you know things happen in, in strange ways. But uh, I was working for Paul Allen at the time. I was the president and general manager of the Trailblazers, and uh, a few years into that run, the Seattle Seahawks were in the process of moving to Los Angeles. So, uh, you know, to make a, a really long story short. Uh, we got involved in, in trying to save the team. I negotiated a deal with the current owner at the time, Ken Baring. It included an option for Paul to buy the team. It was contingent upon us building a new stadium and, and many other things. But uh, the good news is uh, uh, we were able to get the team, build the stadium. Uh, the Seahawks have had an amazing run since then in Seattle, and uh, everybody's quite happy. The, the irony is, the iconic team, the longest sports team in Seattle, the Supersonics, left town, and I think it was just about 15 years to the day when the team announced it was moving to Oklahoma City. So uh, sports can be fluid, uh, you know, expect the unexpected, and uh, sometimes when you think something's going to happen, it won't, and sometimes when it looks gloomy, uh, the sun st starts to shine again. So, uh a lot of fun, a lot of excitement, a lot of, a lot of interesting things. Before we get it, we're going to talk about your background with the book, which I, I just cannot wait to read this book. But the one question that everybody asks me constantly is, I go to the restaurant and I get my bill and it takes me like five, ten minutes to get my bill of what I order. It seemed like every single deal on Friday night, the, the deadline was six o'clock Eastern time. By 6.15, everybody had signed, all the deals signed, how, or it wasn't really signed, but actually agreed to. How does everything happen so quickly? Like you're only supposed to start at six o'clock and suddenly by 6.30, uh, billions of dollars have been uh, uh, promised. 
Well, that's a great question, Ira. And uh, in law school, we, we learned uh, the definition of tampering and <laughs> things things like that. But let's just say there's a uh, really fast start. I think uh, you're probably allowed to have conversations. You're not technically allowed to negotiate. But conversations could be things like, I would like to talk to you at uh, 6.01 uh, when free agency opens. And I'd like to tell you about the great weather we have in Southern Florida <laughs> and the beaches. And I'd like to tell you about our great roster. You know, so, um, you know, I'm not going to, um, you know, I'm not going to point the finger, but there's sort of a, uh, you know, if you're kind of waiting to start when the, when the gun goes off, you've probably missed, everybody else has probably run a lap already. So, um, there's just a, uh, you know, and that's why there's a, a few days before you can actually sign contracts. And you know, contrary to what everybody thinks, all these deals that are being announced, until the contracts are actually signed and approved by the NBA, uh, sides could back out of the deals. They don't because it would be bad for business. It would be bad for future negotiations. So uh, I think the league likes it a little bit because it gets them a, a lot of media attention at what would normally be kind of a slow NBA time of year. Yes. When you were in Sacramento, uh, the one thing I noticed I was, re I was reading some about you is you we're down here in South Florida. We had this whole uh, naming rights deal for the stadium. It's been named American Airlines Arena when it started, but now it's been now we're at the Kaseya Center. FTX was there for a few months, it seemed like. But you negotiated the first naming rights for arena when you named the Sacramento Arena the Arco Arena. I did. It was, uh, I mean, it was a long time ago, but it really was groundbreaking because it was the first commercial sponsor on a, on, on a facility. And as you can imagine, not only do we have to convince somebody to put their name on it, which was very difficult, we had to work with the NBA. They would not allow us to put the, the logo on the basketball court because the uh, the media providers, the networks didn't want to give free advertising. The local newspapers wouldn't call it Arco Arena because <laughs> they thought they were getting free advertising. We we had better success getting Arco Arena on the California state highway signs, if you can imagine the politics in California. But eventually, the NBA uh, approved it with some limitations. Eventually, the Sacramento Bee and the other media outlets called it uh, by its name. And it really became the, the single biggest sponsorship the team had and all teams have. And uh, today you have teams like uh, the Lakers and, and, and the Clippers. They're getting, you know, five, six, seven hundred million dollars for the naming rights uh, deal. So you can really see the growth and in, in the innovation. And that's one thing I like about the NBA. It's a very creative, innovative league. And if you can think of it there's a good chance you could figure out a way to do it <laughs> and that actually got your job at C seattle supersonics or sonics as they however you want to say it, is barry ackerley who's the owner owned all the billboards in that area one of the largest billboard owners in the united states and he said wow this is the best billboard is on a stadium so you go to seattle and your one of your first moves is to draft a high school player named sean kemp uh talk about your decision to draft sean kemp uh, uh, the rain man well, it was actually, I think, my third season. But, uh, you know, I've always felt, you know, I, I do my homework. Uh, I'm passionate. I really thought I knew what I was doing, and I still think I know what I'm doing. But one thing I learned from um, Red Auerbach, who back in the day was kind of the, the godfather of 
of basketball and, you know, a great coach and, and after that a great general manager. Red was not the greatest personnel guy. He made a lot of mistakes. But one thing I learned from Red was in the NBA, you've got to hit a home run. You've got to swing big. And when Red swung big and hit, he got players like Larry Bird as a junior eligible, or he swung a trade, uh, you know, what turned out to be Joe Barry Carroll for Robert Parrish and Kevin McHale, basically. Uh, he drafted a guy who was playing baseball in Toronto who said he would never go to the NBA, a guy named Danny Ainge. So all the sort of unconventional swing-for-the-fence deals that worked out for Red, they became cornerstones to championship teams. And when I saw Sean Kemp, um, you know, usually when kids are coming out of high school, they're pretty skinny and pretty raw, unless you get a LeBron James or back in our day, a Sean Kemp. So I saw a pretty physically mature player, and I really said to myself, uh, this is the absolute combination of Dominique Wilkins and Charles Barkley, you know, the jumping ability and the, 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 the explosiveness of Dominique, yet the physical uh, post-play of Barkley, et cetera. But the problem I had is there hadn't been any players who had come straight from high school to the pros since probably Moses Malone and, and some of those guys, and that had been 10 or 15 years, and nobody in Seattle knew who Sean Kemp was. There was no video. There was no college highlights. And most importantly, my owner didn't know who he was <laughs> and thought he wouldn't He would, thought he thought wouldn't sell any tickets. And that was the, the, the hardest negotiation was to get the owner to give me the softest yes possible. And it wasn't even a yes. It was sort of a soft, I'm not going to say no, but I don't want to do it. And fortunate for me, like all, all deals, the player came in, Sean came in and, and became arguably one of the most popular players in the history of the Sonics in a literally a highlight film with, with Gary Payton and Sean. Uh, I drafted Gary the, the following year. I got the cornerstone pieces to a, a championship caliber team. And I really believe that's what you need to do in the NBA. You've got to get two really good players that you can build around to have any success to win the championship. And for our younger listeners that have it didn't see the team live, and certainly our older listeners who saw this amazing team in 92-93, they lost in the conference finals to Barkley four game in a seven-game series. Uh, 93-94, they had 63 wins, first in the league, and the upsets by the Nuggets in the first round, sort of like what the Heat did to the Bucks. And then, uh, then you left after 94, but then they had another 63 win and then went to the NBA Finals and uh, were down 3-0 to the Jordan, but took two straight games from Michael Jordan in the NBA Finals. So really one of the most dominant teams I've ever seen in, in the history of basketball and, and what that didn't win a title. No, I think, well, actually, I think I had two of those. <laughs> I had that team and then I think my 2000 team in Portland, uh, which uh, lost to Shaq and Kobe in Game 7. We had a 13-point lead in the fourth quarter, and I don't want to get into conspiracy theory. And I, I didn't really go that far into this in the book because, uh, you know, I got to give the Lakers credit. But, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're in game seven against Kobe and Shaq. We're up, I think, 10 at halftime. Both teams have attempted 10 free throws. We're up, I think, uh, 13 in the fourth quarter. And by the end of the game, They've attempted 37 free throws. We've attempted 16. So somehow they got 21 more free throws when we were, were tied with the free throws at halftime. And we're leading throughout the whole game, including 
by 13 in the fourth quarter. So uh, that one sticks to me a little bit more than even the Sonics one with, with Barkley, where they had uh, 28 more free throws than us. But in, in either case, those were two really, really good teams that could have won championships. They didn't. And I think uh, sometimes you need a little luck. But uh, as a general manager, your job is to build a team that has a chance to win it all for uh, a window of time, which might be three, four, or five years. So uh, both Seattle and Portland ended up with some really great teams that got very, very close. And then we we turned to Portland, and when you became the general manager there, you dealt with something that, that they're really looking at right now is that Clyde Drexler was the icon, was the was Mr. Portland, everything, and you traded Drexler uh, to the Rockets. So you made you actually are doing the move they're doing now in terms of trading someone like Dame Lillard, someone who had uh, had ties to the community and who had been drafted by the team and led the team to dominance. But you, but you made that decision to trade then. Talk about the thinking and sort of like com- to talk about present day, what they're thinking about in terms of trading Dame Lillard. Yeah, it was it was deja vu for me. My my first season in Seattle, the last remaining player from the '79 championship team in Seattle, a multi-time All-Star, a pillar of the community, Jack Sigma. Literally, before I even got my uh, my briefcase unpacked in my office on day one, he asked to be traded because the Sonics were terrible and they had made the playoffs for a couple of years, and he wanted a chance to win again. So I had to deal with that. It was a PR issue. It was a basketball issue. And I resolved it by getting Jack to one of the teams he wanted to go to, which was the Milwaukee Bucks. We got Alton Lister, a couple first-round picks, and started a, an amazing rebuild. And even in the first season, uh, I took a team that, that hadn't made the playoffs, gutted it, and we got to the conference final. So it worked out well for both sides. Then when I go to Portland, literally, uh, Paul Allen told me, before I even got there, he said, Clyde's going to be banging on you either for another another new deal, like he does every year, and there's no way I'm ever going to give him a new deal. That's what the owner told me. Uh, but he'll want to be traded, so it's your job to figure it out. So Clyde came in. He wanted to be traded. He actually wanted to go to a bad team thinking he could squeeze more money out of them. And the one thing I sat down and talked to Clyde about was I, th- I said, Clyde, I think you would be better served going to a good team to have a chance to win the championship because you got close in Portland. You've never won it. And when you're, when it's all said and done and your legacy is defined, nobody's going to care how much money you made. They're not going to care how many all-star games you played. The first question they're going to ask you is, did you win a championship? And so um, I came up with a few teams I thought made sense. And the only one I could get a reasonable deal on was with the uh, defending champion, Houston Rockets, with Akeem Olajuwon. And so I sent Clyde down there. And uh, he was part of the team that uh, won it, you know, on the, on the back, the, the back-to-back. And he also got an extension. So he, he ended up getting more money. He got his ring, and um, it allowed me in Portland to start the rebuild. But those are challenging because I traded the most popular and best player in the history of the franchise uh, in Portland. And Portland is a very savvy basketball community. They love their players. They love their team. And, you know, there was probably no package uh, in the NBA I could bring back that the community would say, hey, that's better than Clyde. So I think that's kind of what they're going to face now. Damon, Damian. Lillard is probably now the, the the best player ever to play in Portland, or or certainly 
he, Clyde, Bill Walton, you know, those are the three. And now to have to deal with that, at least there's air cover in that the player has asked to be traded, but that doesn't mean it's not going to be difficult because you've got to get a great package back and you've got to show the community that the package you're getting back is the foundation to something better. And, uh, it's going to take a little skill. It's going to take a little savvy. That's going to take a little courage. Um, but I'm sure they'll figure something out. Did you get a lot of blowback from the community after you traded Clyde? And how how was he responded? I mean, did it go out that he asked for the trade? Or did you sort of said we're trading it? I just wanted to know in terms of how the pressure that came under you after you made a trade like that. Well, I got a lot of blowback before the Clyde thing even happened because I came from Seattle. Um, we had the best record in the league. We were better than the Trailblazers. There was a big rivalry there. So, you know, they were tuned up to hating the Sonics and hating Seattle. And then suddenly the captain of the the Seattle ship comes on board and it took them a while to, (laughs) you know, swallow that because they, they, you know, they, you know, when, when you're spending all your time competing, like if you're competing against another player, who's really good, you, you you learn to boo Reggie Miller or, or whomever it is. And suddenly he joins your team. You're, you're used to booing him, but then it doesn't take too long to realize, oh, wait a minute, he's our guy now. So, uh, so yeah, I didn't take as much heat on the Clyde trade because Clyde wanted out and because I, I put him in with the defending champs. Had I sent him to a, a lottery team or a bad situation, I think the community would have felt like I did uh, Clyde a big disservice, and, and that would not have been right in their eyes. So. Uh, for me, it worked out really well. But you can't always just get the player where the player wants to go. You you know, there's a lot of lot of factors. Uh, and first and foremost, uh, the GM's job is to do what's right and what's best for the franchise. So you you've got to balance the franchise's uh, short and long term goals with the player's desire. And in Dame's case, he can tell you where he wants to go, but you know, part of him getting $54 million a year for the next four years is he, he signed that contract knowing he could play at any of the 30 branch offices in, in the NBA. And, uh, <laughs> he's still going to be making $54 million. So just because a guy wants to go here or there doesn't mean that's where he's going to go. So you, you have to weigh everything and uh, see what the opportunities are. Another trailblazing move that you did at the Portland Trailblazers uh, was bringing in Arvita Sabonis, whose son is playing for the Sacramento Kings, who just signed a tremendous extension for a couple hundred million dollars. But back in the days in, in the late 90s, bringing a foreign player in was unusual. And now we've had the last three MVPs have been foreign. Uh, Jokic won the NBA Finals. So, so you were sort of a way, definitely trailblazing, bringing in Sabonis from Russia to play in the NBA. Well, really, for me, it was kind of a no-brainer. First thing I said to Paul Allen when I was thinking of taking the job was, you guys have had the draft rights to Sabonis for six or seven years, and you've had a really good team. You know, the 90, 91, 92, those teams were, were twice in the finals. Why didn't you bring them over? And he said, well, my GM and my, my coach didn't want them. I go, are you kidding me? I mean, how could you not want him on that team? So the first thing I did is I got on a plane. Well, not first thing, but early on, I jumped on a plane, went to Spain, watched him play, got to spend some time with him, see what he really was about at that moment. And 
I spent my first season committed to trying to get him to Portland, and I, I got him to come over uh, at the start of my second season. And he was there almost the entire time I was there and uh, really one of my favorite players. He Obviously, he wasn't what he was pre-injury, but he still was a very effective player, 7-3, big, great passer, uh, solid, smart player, um, you know, just somebody – any team would want to have. And he was a consummate professional. And uh, it's funny, his son was always playing around in the practice facility. Now to see him be an all-star with Sacramento is, is really a pretty cool thing to see. Uh, it's uh, it's full circle, and I'm, I'm sure uh, Savas is really proud of him. And then it's it sort of full circle in terms of your time there in Portland and sort of what is Pat Riley is dealing with now is that when you put this great team together, we didn't talk about Jermaine O'Neal and Brian Grant and Rasheed Wallace and David Stoudemire, you and Steve Smith. I mean, it's just so many talented players. You then add Scottie Pippen to this. So you brought in Scottie Pippen to the team. Now you felt like, okay, I have a team together. You bring a veteran. Talk about the thinking maybe from the Heat's perspective in terms of they have this team together. It's a veteran team. They're going to bring this superstar player who had who has you know had success throughout the league. Well, if you're, if you're trying to make the parallel to the Heat trying to go get Lillard like the Blazers, we went out and – uh, made a very complicated deal to get Scotty Pippen. And uh, Scotty did not want to come to Portland. He only wanted to go to Los Angeles, play for the Lakers, play for Phil. His wife only wanted to be in L.A. So I had multiple things. I, it was a very challenging salary cap deal to put together. It was very challenging to talk the player into uh, wanting to be in Portland, at least – willing to be in Portland. And once I got him to the willing to be in Portland stage, um, I pounced on Houston pretty quick and I, I, I pushed the deal fast and I kind of gave them a short timeline. And if they didn't hit my timeline, uh, I'm out. And once I'm out, their their leverage and their, their market goes down dramatically. So it was a little bit of a, you know, the negotiation. You know, I have a chapter in my book only on negotiation. And every tip I talk about involves negotiating with an agent or another team or making a player trade. And I think the Pippen example might be one of the ones I used in the, the negotiation chapter. But Scotty came in. He did a fantastic job. He was a really good leader, really good player, uh, you know, great work ethic, great habits. And, again, that team came so close to winning it all. I mean, it's, so, you know, some people call me on the anniversary of whenever – uh, the Lakers started that run, and they they always tell me that's the best team ever to not win a championship. And I go, wow, do they give out trophies for that? <laughs> I mean, that's not a that's not a a thing. I mean, it's a thing you're proud of, but it's a thing that hurts because when you get really close, it hurts. So I think with um, the Heat, uh, it's hard to say. Obviously, they got really close last year. They got to the finals, but then the flip side is. They barely made the playoffs. They were like uh, a few minutes away from not making it out of the play-in. And so that's a really different kind of perspective. Our team, we were winning in the mid-50s every year. So we were a solid top-tier team. No no this, that, or, or that. Or no luck. No, no. Everybody knew we were really good. Miami's a little different. They, they ended up really, really good, but... They barely got in. So what are they? You know, that's a good question. What are they? And uh, so if they're, if they're trying to get that next piece to win it all, uh, 
uh, and to keep their foundation in, in play, um, they don't have a very deep roster. One thing I had, I, I built a very deep roster. So when I was able to make trades that took multiple players in, in salary cap nuance, I had players teams wanted, and that allowed me to be uh, a little bit more creative out there. Nowadays, it looks like everybody's just doing salary cap math, and they sign guys to really big contracts, and then a year later, they give another team draft picks to take the contract off their books. So a year later, you're giving up your, your draft capital to get out of a mistake you made the year before, which to me is one of the dumbest things I've ever seen, but I see that happening all around the league. So, so um, I don't know how desirable the, the roster is to, to other teams. That's going to be the challenge, but um, it's also challenging to trade a guy who's making $54 million a year with the new labor agreement and, you know, the, the risk of getting into a second apron that not only is extremely punitive financially, but it's uh, very punitive from a basketball perspective relative to mid-level exceptions and draft picks and trade rules and, and things of that nature. So uh, Pat is very savvy. He's done it before. He's always looking to do it again. And if there's somebody in the league you should have confidence in trying to get it done, uh, he would be the guy. You know, one of the biggest challenges is when you look at when you're trading for a player and saying, OK, how's this player going to fit into our system? But it also is you have a, if you have a young player and I, I'm talking about Tyler Hero. Uh, there's a lot of people in Miami that are saying, well, this is what Tyler is. But remember, he led the league in free throw shooting last year at 94 percent. He's only 23 years old. Like, where is his what's his ceiling? And, if, and I think that's the debate. You know, when you have your own players, talk about a little bit about valuing your own players that are young and how good they're going to be. And do I want to keep this great young player who's going to emerge into a superstar? Do I want to trade them where I think this is the best they're ever going to be? Well, that's a good question. I think, generally speaking, all teams overvalue their own players, uh, which is good. You you get a belief in them, a confidence in them. Nobody's ever won the championship with just young players. Uh, it's never happened. It probably never will happen. Now, you can have young players who are key pieces of a championship, but you've got to have some really good, strong veterans in there. I think also most people, you know, probably starting with the media and Everybody else, social media and fans alike, generally are only looking at the offensive end. They watch the ball go in the basket. And all the analytics you hear about through the media mostly are offensive analytics. So there are two ends to the court. There's systems. There's style of play. Uh, the Heat have, in my mind, one of, if not the best coach in the NBA and Eric Spolstra. So that's a real, real plus. But you have have to know what you're trying to, to do, how you're trying to build it, what works for you. Uh, a, a player in one system may be really, really good, but not so good in another system. So uh, in projecting out how much better players are going to get, how much better are they going to get after you give them all the money, how is their work ethic going to continue on, what's their injury history, being the best free throw shooter in the league is not really a big deal. <laughs> I would start. I, I would start with you know how many times are you getting to the line? <laughs> okay, you know, great, you can shoot ninety percent, but if you're only getting there four times a game, that's not a big deal. If you're getting there twelve times a, a, a game, little little bigger deal. And again, I'm not trying to minimize it. It's it's great that he's leading the league in free throw shooting, but 
uh, I would expect if any guard on my team, if they can't shoot 80% or above, they better be really, really special in some other area. But, uh, no, he's a, he's a nice young player. I think a lot of teams would love to have him. But um, I don't think he's going to be a, a swap for, for Lillard, if that's what you're asking. But, uh, but then again, maybe – you know, if you're in the go for it now, it's one thing. If you're in the, I don't think we can quite get there now. I want to keep the young pieces. That's another thing. So um, I don't want to pretend to be in somebody's, uh, you know, office figuring out what they're going to do. But each each organization has to figure out where they are, and more importantly, where they're going. And once they figure out where they're going, they got to figure out how to get there. And you know, you got to be a lot more creative. Teams got to get out there and do three-team deals, four-team deals, with the cap the way it is, it can't just be my contracts equal your contracts. Let's Can we make a deal? It's got to start with the basketball deal. Does the basketball deal make sense? Is the basketball deal something we want to do? And if the answer is yes, then it's your job to figure out how can I make this happen. And that's where the, uh, the creativity and the, uh, and the think tank really comes into play. And I guess the question would be, is Pat Riley and Joe Cronin, the general managers of their respective teams, what are they doing now? Are they making phone calls to agents? Are they calling each other? Are they calling the other teams? Like, I just like, I, you know they're working today. <laughs> but I just was from thinking from a perspective of to get a deal like this done, how like how does this get done? Like, when they when we finally get this announcement that it's going to be Lillard is traded to the Heat or Lillard trade the Sixers, like all the phone calls that have to be made before that decision, before that announcement. Well, let's start with this. Lillard may not be traded, okay? So let's let's take the temperature down a little bit. Just because he asked for a trade doesn't mean he'll get traded. Harden asked for a trade doesn't mean he'll get traded, okay? So you got to start with that. So all the excitement may just turn out to be nothing but a uh, an exercise where the phone bills went up. <laughs> um, so that's one thing. Second thing is, I don't think you need to call teams every 15 minutes and say, I'm interested in Lillard. Okay. They, those phone calls have been made. They know what teams might be interested, might not be interested. Uh, sometimes there's quick deals and quick deals happen because maybe the draft hasn't happened and there's draft picks involved or the cap's going to go up in the new cap year. I got to do it in the old cap year. Uh, sometimes uh, deals take a long time because maybe I have to clear cap space Maybe I have to make decisions on other players. Maybe I have to decide if I can get other players. And if I can, I'm not interested in that player anymore. Uh, sometimes deals take longer because you need to let the team, who in this case might be trading a player, find out that the market's not as red hot as they thought and suddenly their their expectations come down. I mean, look at last last year, Danny Ainge did an amazing job. He traded a guy that not too many people wanted for basically five first-round picks. And Rudy a few Gobert. Years earlier, a few years earlier, Sam Presti traded uh, Paul George for five first-round picks, an NBA starter, and then a guy who's turned out to be first-team All-Pro. Okay? So these are some pretty nice packages. So if I'm Portland... And they're getting five first-round picks for Gobert or a first-team All-Pro guy and five picks and Gallinari for, for Paul George. They 
probably have a pretty high uh, bar in terms of what they're looking for for their guy. Now, maybe they get that, or maybe that expectation comes down a little bit as time goes on. So it's to answer your question, Ira, there's no right, wrong, this is how you do it. There's a lot of um, science. There's a lot of art. There's a lot of feel. There's a lot of understanding the other organizations, how they make decisions, when they make decisions, why they make decisions. Are they media-driven? Are they cash-driven? Are they cap-driven? Are they coach-driven? Uh, you know, so you really need to understand the nuance of every team and how it works. Who really will make a deal versus there's a lot of general managers who like to say, oh, I was in on the Lillard trade. I called. <laughs> I was in on that. And, and if I'm an owner, I go, big deal. Of course you should make a call to see if, there, if there's anything we could do. You get judged by what you actually do, not the things you thought about doing. Okay? <laughs> or, or, oh, I wanted – I thought I was going to draft Steph Curry. I, I – I would. I liked him too. Oh, I just missed him by one spot. Really? If you knew he was going to be that good and you liked him that much, you couldn't move up one spot. You know, these guys all have uh, crazy narratives. But at the end of the day, all that really matters is what did you get done? Show me the body of work, what you got done or what you didn't get done. And again, so maybe the best thing is to make the trade. Maybe the best thing is to not make the trade. Uh, time will tell, but those are the kinds of things I think the, the GMs are thinking about and, and working on. And um, and then it's a little bit of poker. If you can get a couple teams going and, and, and sort of get the bidding up, uh, but then it's a timing thing. If you wait too long, you might lose all opportunities. If you push too hard, you might push people away. Um, you know, where are we going to be in three, four years from now under this new labor deal? And again, I, I've read it. It's about 700 pages. I've read it pretty thoroughly and I've you know, written a bunch of notes. I know what it's going to look like, so I've already factored that in. I, and I assume, well, I will, I will promise you most of the GMs of the league aren't even going to read the agreement. You know, they're not even going to know. There might be a cap guy in the office who reads it, but they really, they really need to understand where this is going and, and make sure their owner's on board with where, where they want to go. So um, who knows? I mean, they, you know, they could be doing a deal as we speak right now, or we could be having the same conversation after Labor Day. And uh, that, that's, that's the exciting part of it all. Bob, this is, we're talking to Bob Whitson, uh, author of Game Changer. This is you were teaching a master class in uh, NBA uh, negotiation. It's the book is called Game Changer: Insider Stories of Sonics Resurgent, the Trailblazers Turnaround, and the Deal That Saved the Seahawks. And before you go, I just wanted to ask you one final question in terms of football, because you also were the general manager of the Seahawks, and talk a little bit about the being a general manager of a basketball team and a football team, and what are the similarities and differences between managing being the you're the, as the only person to have done that that job pretty amazing well you could start with uh the similarities are both are, are sports both are teams both are trying to win championships uh both are driven by salary caps uh the nba salary cap is truly a hard salary cap meaning uh it prevents you from doing a lot of things uh the nfl is different in that you basically have one game a week so you have, uh, we have, we had 16 games when I was in it. Now there's 17. So a game here or a game there during the season really has a big impact. 
uh, on, on whether or not you may or may not make the playoffs. In the NBA, there's 82 games, so honestly you could have uh, a two-, three-, four-week span where you're not doing very well, and you still have plenty of time to right the ship. Uh, the NBA I love because you get one one player, or certainly two, and you can go from the bottom of the league to the top of the league. I mean, it really has a dramatic impact on, on where you are as a franchise. In the NFL, you really have to build a, a, a solid team in all three phases. You can have the best quarterback in the league and be the worst team. If you don't have a line, if you don't have receivers, if you don't have all the, the some kind of a defense – and in football, you know you're going to get injuries every week and, and lose players, so you have to have depth. So the draft is probably a little more important in football because those late-round picks do have to come in and contribute. The culture in football is a little different because it's a, it's, it's, it's a violent sport. There's a lot of collision. If you're not doing your job, I could get hurt. <laughs> okay, if, if you didn't block your guy, I might get my head taken off. Uh, in basketball you know, one guy can take over a game. So it's hard to say, uh, you know, maybe maybe the NBA is a little bit more like rock stars and the NFL might be a little bit more like a symphony that you need all the all the pieces working properly to get the right music. Where the rock star, you might just have uh, one guitarist take off on a riff and that's the whole song. It's fantastic. So, I mean, there's... So it's hard to explain until you've done it, but it's uh, they're both exciting. I love them both. Uh, there are similarities, but there's also quite a few differences. Wow, I love that analogy between a symphony and a, and a rock group. But, Bob, I know you're super busy on this holiday weekend. Thank you so much for coming on on Iron Sports. I really appreciate everyone get this book because we didn't even touch on uh, the whole idea about you helped the Seattle get the stadium, Loom Stadium, all those other things. I cannot wait for this book to come out, I think, in October. You can pre-order on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Um, Bob, thanks a lot for coming on Iron Sports. I really appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Ira. Really good stuff there from Bob Whitsitt. Ira, let's talk a little uh, racing before we wrap it up. Yeah, there was the Formula One was in Austria at the Red Bull Stadium. Uh, clearly, Matthew Verstappen, who's now won seven out of the nine races, is only 13 to go. He was so dominant in this race that he had a 25-second lead that he was able, if you have the fastest lap, you can go and get an extra point. So he actually went and pitted when he didn't have to pit at all. He had the, the race already. He had enough time to pit and then come out and still won by five seconds and got the fastest lap. Uh, Charles Leclerc from Ferrari was second, Perez was third, uh, the Mercedes cars of Russell and Hamilton were seventh and eighth. This coming week, it's going to be in Great Britain and Silverstone. Mercedes thinks they're going to have a better race there. NASCAR in Chicago, that was a fun race. They were on the streets of Chicago, and Shane Van Gilsersperg from New Zealand, he was the first-time debut winner of a NASCAR race since 1963 with Johnny Rutherford. Uh, crazy race in the city, but it's a new thing called Project Set 91. The track house is doing is bringing in drivers from international drivers in, and because it was a street course, it was different. It was a great race to watch. And Alex Palou is dominating the IndyCar race. He had his third straight race that he won, fourth in five races. So it was a big race, a big week in racing. What are you doing this week? Um, watching tennis. That'll yeah. be really my main thing all week is watching tennis and seeing where it is going to happen with Dame Lillard and the Miami Heat. Thanks so much to Bob Whitsett. He's Ira. I'm Mike. Let's talk next Monday night. Ira on sports.